Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. They chained themselves to railings, poured ink in post boxes, and sometimes worse. One woman even followed Churchill on his public speaking tour, ringing a bell every time he tried to speak. They defy everything we know about Victorian ladies. They were loud and they were angry, and they weren't afraid to show it. We feel that same anger today. Despite winning the vote, there is still a gender pay gap. We are still raped and brutalized, and we still don't have affordable and accessible childcare. These women inspire us to keep fighting. We wear t-shirts with their slogans, sometimes even name our babies after them. But do we really know them? At the turn of the century, they came together in their thousands. But beyond Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, and the handful of other individuals who committed huge acts of bravery, or terrorism, depending on your viewpoint. Who were these women? What did they believe in? And what did they want? And did they ever really get it? Today's show comes to you in three parts. Three parts for three stories about three women. Women who would risk everything for what they believed in. Part one, Minnie. On a cold day in February 1889, on a dark and damp street in London's East End, a baby girl was born. Her father, Isaac Glassman, would hold the warm bundle in his freshly washed hands, still slightly stained with traces of coal from his earlier rounds. Minnie, he would say to her, as she looked up at him with round brown eyes. Muzzletoff, people would say to him, as he smiled with pride. The family lived on Great Eagle Street, identified by Charles Boo's famous poverty maps as being very poor to poor. When Minnie was still small, the family moved to Crickson Street, a marginally more comfortable area. New guest street lighting had recently been installed in response to the Jack the Ripper murders, which took place in the neighbouring streets the autumn before Minnie was born. Isaac's coal trading business must have been something of a success as he was able to send Minnie to school and keep her there well beyond the compulsory school age of 12. Other kids in the neighbourhood would leave as soon as they could, heading out to work in factories, sweatshops or domestic service to supplement the family's meagre income. But Minnie was a bright young girl and her father would know that education was a ticket to a better life. In 1908, age 19, Minnie began her teacher training. In 1911, she secured her first teaching post and joined the NUT, the National Union of Teachers, becoming a subs collector at her East London branch. Her political drive was apparent from the outset, but where it came from is unclear. Maybe it formed as a result of growing up on streets where few children had shoes and half of all babies died before they reached their first birthday. It may have been her commitment to the principles of Yiddishkeit that embraces the collective spirit of trade unionism. Whichever, it found its way to her and by 1913 she was proposing a resolution on equal pay for women at the NUT conference. She would lose by just one vote. Then along came Edgar, tall, handsome and not intimidated by her intellect. Controversially though, he was not Jewish. Marrying someone who wasn't Jewish at that time was a big deal. You risked being ostracised by both your family and the wider community. There's no record of what Minnie's parents thought of Edgar, 
but since she was not thrown out of the family home, it suggests that they were more liberal-minded than most. It's quite likely, however, that there would have been mutterings in Yiddish by neighbours, and while Minnie may not have understood the words, she would get the sentiment. Walking down the street, maybe there were looks as she passed the pickle barrels, or whispers by the salt beef sellers. Whatever happened, Minnie was a determined woman, and a woman in love. On the 4th of April 1914, her and Edgar married. Edgar Lansbury was the son of George Lansbury, the local MP who founded socialist newspaper The Daily Herald in 1912. A strong supporter of women's suffrage, he was briefly imprisoned for publicly supporting militant action. Following in her father-in-law's footsteps, Minnie Lansbury was elected to the committee of the East London Federation of Suffragettes in 1915. These working-class suffragettes tied their campaign to the labour movement and fought for universal suffrage. One person, one vote. This was in contrast to their West London sisters who only campaigned for the vote on the same terms as men. Since most working-class men did not have the vote either, this would have excluded about 60% of mostly working-class women. It wasn't just the franchise for the East London suffragettes. For them, the fight was much bigger. These were women who lived on the edge of poverty. They could be plunged into starvation following an industrial accident, their children might die for want of a penny to pay a doctor, and the threat of the workhouse always loomed near. So the East London suffragettes established a cost-price restaurant, gave out free milk and medical care for children. They campaigned for equal pay and set up the first Montessori nursery, which Minnie became secretary of. In 1915, Minnie gave up teaching to focus on her political work. Like many of the other East London suffragettes, Minnie was a pacifist. This led her to become involved in the Poplar War Pensions Committee, a role which would establish her as a local hero. A House of Commons report revealed that of 45,000 soldiers discharged from the army, a third received no pension. Even those who received one often had to wait weeks or months for the money to arrive. Minnie championed the rights of these victims of war, and she would gain huge loyalty and respect for it. It's perhaps not surprising, therefore, that when standing for her election in her home borough of Poplar, she won easily. The 1919 local elections saw Labour Party candidates in Poplar sweep to power. It marked a radical shift in political representation. For the first time, the borough's councillors looked like the electorate comprising of dockers, railway workers, labourers and trade unionists. Amongst the 30 councillors, five were women, including Minnie. Although a massive gender imbalance, they were still far ahead of other East London boroughs. The newly elected councillors immediately drew up a radical programme of social change to tackle the unemployment, hunger and poverty in the borough. They built new housing, implemented a smallpox vaccination campaign, set up a dental clinic, and provided free milk and hot meals to the poorest children. By the end of the year, Poplar had one of the lowest infant mortality rates ever. They were literally saving lives, but there was one burden on Poplar's poorest residents that was harder to resolve. For many years, there had been a campaign of resistance to the London taxation system, which was seen as grossly unjust to poor boroughs like Poplar. Despite huge levels of poverty in the area, they had to pay the same rates as the richer boroughs on the other side of the city. Discontent grew and the councillors eventually agreed they would not collect the tax from its citizens. 
It wasn't a decision that would go down well with the central London county councils, who took the matter to the High Court. The popular councillors discussed their options. What would happen if they lost their case? Would they just submit and pay? The women councillors had all been members of the East London Federation of Suffragettes. Others were pacifists who'd faced prison during the war as conscientious objectors. Minnie herself had been arrested on a peace protest just a few years earlier. So it was that councillor Julius Gurr took a deep breath before calmly saying, we will just go to prison, that is all. They organised an enormous procession of 2,000 supporters. As they marched through the streets accompanied by a brass band, they held aloft a banner which read, Poplar Borough Council, marching to the High Court and possibly prison. And when the High Court told them to pay, and again they refused, warrants were issued for their arrest. Minnie had built up such loyalty with ex-servicemen that they formed a barricade around her house the night the arrest warrant came into force. Five days later they came for her. She insisted on going to make the point as well as the men that she would stand by her beliefs and stand up for the workers. A crowd of 10,000 strong came out in support of the women as they headed to Holloway Prison, their male counterparts having been sent to Brixton. Minnie was fashionably dressed and appeared relaxed as she walked towards her fate, shaking hands with those who gathered in support. Although Minnie usually shied away from the limelight, she made a speech at Poplar Town Hall before departing, even managing to crack a small joke. These jubilant feelings would soon fall away once they were inside the prison. The poor conditions in Holloway had been highlighted by suffragettes imprisoned there a decade earlier. To see them for yourself was still a shock. It was unsanitary and brutal, with sleep hard to come by for the wailing and screaming that would pass through the night. Minnie soon fell ill and was transferred to the hospital wing. When the women were released six weeks later, Minnie was so unwell she had to be helped into the cab. The following year, she would develop pneumonia and die. People flooded the streets for the funeral procession and her coffin was carried by her still loyal ex-servicemen. Many speeches were given and letters written to newspapers about this woman of great intellectual power and extraordinary heart and mind taken from the world at just 32. Many of the other jail counsellors would succumb to early deaths or prolonged ill health, which they attributed to their time in prison. Their sacrifice wasn't for nothing though. As other councils joined the boycott in solidarity, a bill was rushed through Parliament, which more or less equaled the tax burden between rich and poor boroughs. Coming up, two more stories of suffragettes who would challenge society norms and defy the odds. That's after the break. Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. There is also a walking tour app where you can take yourself on guided tours around local heritage landmarks and resources for younger members of the family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. Find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. I'm Esther Freeman, this is Rebel Women. We're back with part two. 
Part 2 is Adelaide. Known as Darkest London, Bethnal Green at the end of the 19th century was known for its filth and poverty. The air smelled of horse manure and cured fish, while in single threadbare rooms whole families lived, earning barely enough from tailoring and bootmaking to keep themselves from starvation. Adelaide Knight arrived into this world in 1871, and she did not have the most auspicious start to life. When she was still small, her father, who was an alcoholic, took his own life. Because records are not kept about poor working-class women, it's not known how Adelaide's mother got through this emotional and financial tragedy. The loss of their father's income was devastating to a family like theirs, as a woman's wage could never equal that of a man's. Then there was the issue of how to take care of the children while at work. There was no formal childcare provision, not that she would have been able to afford it even if there was. Mostly children were left of their neighbours or older siblings, or simply to fend for themselves. It was during this period that Adelaide sustained a childhood injury, which was serious enough to leave her needing sticks to walk with for the rest of her life. She was often in pain and her health poor. At a time when having a disability could mean a death sentence, or at least a lengthy stint in the workhouse, Adelaide would surprise them all. A bright child, she would stay at school until she was 13, which was beyond what most children in their neighbourhood would do. It was clear early on that whatever Adelaide did, she would not do it meekly. At 23, she courted controversy when she met and later married a sailor, Donald Adolphus Brown, the son of a Royal Navy officer from Abini in what is now Guyana. Not only was their mixed-race relationship a shock to many, but they also shared household chores, including the weekly laundry. To them it was practical. Adelaide found many tasks difficult and even painful because of her childhood injury. That's not to diminish Donald's modern and committed attitude to marriage, which saw him vigorously support his wife in any way he could. He even took Adelaide's surname, becoming Donald Knight. Donald shared Adelaide's political beliefs and commitment to social justice. They both joined the Independent Labour Party, known as the ILP, and in 1906 she joined the Women's Social and Political Union, run primarily by Emmeline Pankhurst and her eldest daughter Christabel. In those early days of the organisation, Christabel could not take on the role her mother planned for her as she was finishing her law degree, so Emmeline assigned the role of Honorary Secretary to her middle daughter, Sylvia. A committed socialist, Sylvia wanted to develop links between the suffrage and labour movements, dispatching fellow suffragette Annie Kenny to East London. Annie visited local ILP branches where she met women activists. We can assume this is where she came across Adelaide, who was soon elected secretary of the newly formed Canning Tower branch of the Women's Social and Political Union. This was the first branch to be opened in East London, and it was swiftly followed by branches in Stepney, Bow, Poplar and Limehouse. That same year, Adelaide formed part of a delegation that went to Herbert Asquith's house, a prominent member of the Liberal Party, who would later become Prime Minister. They attempted to secure a meeting. The meeting was never achieved, as Adelaide was arrested with two other suffragettes and charged with disturbing the peace. They were later sentenced to six weeks in prison unless they agreed to behave themselves and give up campaigning. 
It was a difficult decision for Adelaide, who was in poor health and now had two small children, the youngest only 18 months old. In a letter to Donald, Adelaide wrote, quote, What can I do, Daddy? To draw back will encourage this intimidation. Can I count on your full support? It will be agonising to be away from you and our children, but with your help I can face this. There was no hesitation from Donald. He gave his full support, taking on the care of their seven children without complaint. So Adelaide packed her bags and headed to Holloway Prison to face whatever would come. Conditions in the women's prison were appalling, but she tackled her incarceration with determination and resilience. Every morning she would sing the socialist anthem, The Red Flag, scratching its lyrics into the window of her cell with a hairpin. But her stay at Holloway took its toll, and she returned a weakened woman. On top of that, she was about to face a huge betrayal. In 1907, Christabel finished her education and took over from Sylvia. Unlike her sister, Christabel was not interested in the involvement of working-class women in the movement. Ties were cut with all political parties, including the ILP, and the red socialist flags were replaced with the green, purple and white sash that we all know so well today. Support was withdrawn from the East London branches, and when on a mass demonstration, they were ordered to stay at the back. Supposedly, this was to protect them from the risk of arrest, but it only served to reinforce the feeling that working-class women were being removed from the movement. Adelaide responded in fury, resigning her position at the Canningtail branch. It closed shortly after, complaining of neglect by the leaders of the movement. Over the next few years, all East London branches of the Women's Social and Political Union were closed. They would never re-establish them. The political drive of women in this radical part of the capital lived on, though. Sylvia Pankhurst would return to Bow in 1914 and establish the East London Federation of Suffragettes. Meanwhile, Adelaide was elected to the West Ham Board of Guardians in 1910, which oversaw the support for the poor, including the management of the workhouses. In the 1920s, she would join Sylvia again by becoming one of the founding members of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Part 3, Melvina. They said she toiled like a Trojan, a great orator that could set the crowd alight. You could imagine her on the barricades, in the midst of the French Revolution, holding a red flag above her head, bellowing out impassioned cries to the fighters, urging them on to freedom. But actually you would find her on the dank streets of Bow in East London, amongst the fruit and vegetables, preaching to the poor working class woman. Organise yourselves, she would say. Don't be led away by people with superior brains. We have something more than that. We have practical experience. Who was this dynamic woman? There's a photo of her in Tower Hamlet's archives, standing above a crowd of women and barefooted children. She is a slim, middle-aged woman with dark hair tucked neatly under a crumpled hat. Her hands on her hips, a lock on her face that says she means business. Her name was Melvina Walker. Little was known about Melvina's early life other than she left school in her teens. Her name is Celtic in origin and means chieftain, which would prove fortuitous. She married a dock worker and worked herself in the East End. At some point she joined the Women's Social and Political Union, 
but found herself at odds with the politics of the middle-class leaders. She criticised their dismissal of the needs of mothers and, like Adelaide Knight, bristled at the sidelining of working women in the movement. Malvina was also critical of the old-fashioned suffragist standpoint that their political activity should be limited to votes for women and venereal disease. In Malvina's mind, feminism was not enough. She was dismissive of the middle-class orators that dominated the political platforms. She could not see these bourgeois women supporting the establishment of a socialist state, as in Russia, and it was Russia who held her heart. She wanted revolution. A strong supporter of the 1917 Russian Revolution, Malvina joined the Hands Off Russia campaign with Sylvia Pankhurst in 1919. The initiative was started by British socialists in opposition to their government support of the White Army, a loose confederation of anti-communist forces fighting the Bolsheviks. Britain was arming them. But workers in the East End docks were in a unique position to stop this. Malvina worked feverishly around the streets of Poplar, talking to the wives of dockers. She told them to ask their husbands to see that no munitions went to those trying to crush the revolution. Malvina quickly earned Sylvia's respect and admiration for her fiery speeches, propelling East End women into action. In 1920, they were successful in getting dockers to lay down their tools, an all-out stoppage that prevented arms being loaded onto the SS Jolly George. It seems likely that Malvina would have joined Sylvia and Adelaide as founding members of the Communist Party for Great Britain, although there are no records of this. In fact, there is little record of her anywhere after 1920. You can only assume she went on fighting, because stopping never seems to be an option for women like Malvina. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in East London. Special thanks to the National Heritage Lottery Fund for their support of today's episode. Join us next week when we go on a journey into queer history with women's role in the formation of London's Gay Liberation Front and more.